The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise in banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi, making Kiwi better off. I want to tell you a couple of stories about houses I've bought. Not because I've bought a house, but just to show you a particular problem that we have. 15 years ago, when I came back to New Zealand after a decade overseas, we were keen to buy a a house close-ish to the centre of Auckland, and the cheapest house in the best area that we could find was a house on the side of the hill, which we knew was going to be a little bit cold because it was in the shady side of the hill, and that was one of the reasons we could afford it. So we moved in. It was nice during the summer, but during the winter, it was awful. And like a lot of houses, there was mould, there were coals, there were blankets on the floor underneath the door. And by the end of the winter, we realised we might have either made a mistake or that was why it was so cheap. And the next winter, we determined to um, invest some money in putting insulation in the ceiling and under the floor and putting in one of those HRV DVS systems that circulates the warm air from the ceiling cavity down into the house to make it nice and warm and dry. And we put in a heat pump and we did all those things. And it was relatively easy for us to do because, of course, we had a floating mortgage loan and we were able to essentially suck some of the inevitably higher equity out of the house and put it into our warm, dry winter the next year. And it was like a revelation. This house was suddenly warm and dry and we didn't have to go to the hospital with a cold and there was nothing growing in the corners. It was great. And uh, we were there for eight or nine lovely years having a great winter every time. And it significantly improved the service value we were getting out of the house. We hoped, of course, that we'd be put into the the capital value of the house when we sold it. I'm not sure it was actually. People just looked at the house and said, oh, that's in the shady side of the hill. I'm not going to pay that much for it. Not knowing, of course, although we tried to put it into the real estate ad that it would have all that stuff. But it made sense for us and it was really easy to finance. The next house that we bought in Wellington, we made sure when we looked to buy it that it was insulated and it did have the heat pump and it did have the circulating air and uh, that was lovely. And, And we thought it might be a slither of value that was added onto the value of the house. Um, So we didn't have to worry about the financing then. But it brings into focus for me a particular problem that we have right now, which is New Zealand needs to build much better new houses that are much warmer and drier and produce less carbon. Not only that, we have to retrofit all the previous houses that we've built, many of which are still like the house we had in Auckland, cold and damp and not very healthy. That's why we have so many people turning up in emergency departments every winter. A lot of kids, preventable diseases because of the poor housing quality we have. So how do we do this? And how are we going to finance it? That's what I think is interesting because there is a market failure going on here. A lot of the houses that we build now 
Uh, we try to keep them as cheap as possible because they're so expensive, or at least the land they're built on is so expensive. The house and land package is going to really stretch us. So we try to cut the costs. And in many ways, that means, you know, you don't go for the double glazed windows, you go for the single glazed windows, or you don't put in the best insulation, you go for what's the basic insulation, the basic standard building code insulation. And it means that we are producing more carbon from our houses. We have to run the heat pump for longer, or we might even have had a, a coal-fired stove or one of those horrible bar heaters that uh, suck up the juice. And that is a problem for New Zealand, because when you're at right stretch to your limit and looking to build a house or buy a unit in an apartment complex or maybe be part of a cooperative in uh, setting up a house, you have to try and keep your costs down and you have to be very focused on the upfront costs. But what if you were able to think about the longer-term costs and benefits of maybe building your house in a different way. So that would mean, you know, what they call seven-star green standards. It's much better insulation. It's ensuring that the air doesn't go through in and out, that it's properly ventilated, so that um, you're not spending so much on power, and so that the carbon emissions, not only in building the house, but in running it for the next 50 years, are much lower. The reason this is important is that last week the Climate Commission came out and said that New Zealand needed to reduce its carbon emissions from new houses by 35% over the next 15 years or so. And we had to reduce the emissions from our existing houses by about 6%. This week I speak to Philippa Howden-Chapman, who really is the expert on housing design for safe, warm houses and has done lots of research on this. And she talks to me about how uh, we, we've got to do a lot more work and a lot faster, but that there are some market failures. Essentially, New Zealand's house building industry is set up to build cold, mouldy, cheap, standalone houses on sections, and sections that require one or two or three carriages and some cars. They are carbon-heavy, carbon-producing houses. And often they're produced by one or two people bands and a double cab ute building one or two houses a year who don't have the skills or the capital base or the machinery to do it properly. And they certainly don't have the experience to do the sort of more complex projects that involve medium density, apartments, townhouses, often requiring unusual consents, a lot of planning a lot of time, and time costs money, and so it's difficult for our building industry to do these more energy-efficient buildings. Some organisations are doing them. Uh, Kangaroo, for example, our biggest house builder, the state-owned house builder, they have an interesting ability to use their balance sheet to solve some of these financing issues. A, they can borrow very cheaply, and B, they can look at the costs and benefits for the entire state of having warm, dry houses where the kids aren't going into hospital and the people in those houses are not having to spend crazy amounts of money on electricity over the life of that home. And because they might have multiple tenants through there, but they are still the ultimate owner of the home, they can justify spending and doing things differently in a way that reduces the carbon footprint over the life of that home. But again, more than 70% of our homes are built by small building firms who are not really set up for the sorts of houses that we need to meet these carbon goals. 
So there's a market structure problem right there. Secondly, many banks are just not set up to lend for new buildings, particularly new buildings off the plan, apartments, townhouses, those sorts of things. They worry about, you know, people not getting housing consents. They worry about leaky and quaky homes. And also, they often apply uh, higher risk premiums and they are willing to uh, lend only with higher deposits for these sorts of buildings because they've been burnt in the past. And this is the challenge for New Zealand, which Philippa Howden-Chapman has illustrated in our interviews and which Julia Jackson, uh, the Head of Sustainability at Bank, also talks about. How are we going to solve this problem, a market failure, How are we going to solve it with regulation and with different ways of financing issues so that in the long run, we do the right thing when we make that upfront decision? That's this week. And when the facts change, I'm Bernard Hickey in a podcast brought to you with the spinoff in partnership with KiwiBank. Today on the line from Wellington, we have Philippa Howden-Chapman, who is a long-time and deep researcher into the business of housing, and in particular has recently edited a book with Libby Grant and Helen Vigors on improving buildings and cutting carbon. Uh, Philippa, thank you very much for, for coming and talking to us. Now, I was wondering if you could tell us what is the opportunity for New Zealand to reduce carbon emissions from the houses, not only that we're building, but the houses that are already built? Well, that's a critical question. And in fact, housing is a critical sector to reduce carbon emissions. Because if we think about the consumption of carbon, about 20% of it is used in housing. And that's both embodied carbon and the operating of a house. It's really important considering that we lock in carbon when we build buildings or remediate them. And we expect our buildings to last for at least 50 years. So the decisions we make in the next period are absolutely critical and I I think we're moving quite slowly really. I would like 2035 to be a harder target. How do you embed carbon in a a house? Because I thought you'd have to build them with concrete and steel, which actually, you know, produce a lot of carbon. Yeah, they do. And that's why... um, I mean, as we count it at the moment, that's produced largely, you know, the the steel now, most of it comes in from um, China, so it doesn't count in in our carbon. But if we're really thinking about consumption, we consume it, we we build the off-site manufacturing of steel and so forth, then it really should count. And we've got this really strange situation in New Zealand where we grow all this timber and we have it in logs sitting on the wharf with methyl bromide on it, um, being shipped off overseas. And I think um, this is one of the things we've got to look at, at the vertical integration of materials. And we should be looking um, much more closely at upscaling uh, engineered timber. And that's one way we could um, reduce the carbon in our buildings by using engineered timber rather than steel and concrete. How much of a an opportunity is there to do that in terms of how much uh, steel and concrete could be replaced in the current you know building that we're doing at the moment do we know well i think there's um quite a um a major opportunity and some of the contributors to our book estimated that if we continue building as we are, we'll exceed the zero carbon by about four to ten times by um, 2050. We've got to dramatically change our ways of producing and consuming 
because of course the embodied carbon is really critical but then there are the issues about the kind of how we operate our houses the heating and the cooking and the ventilation and appliances and then of course what kind of fuels we use whether we use gas and fires and we're starting to get targets, but they're for 2050. So what sort of things would we need to change? What sort of regulations would need to be in place? Well, I think both the political instructions, but particularly our agencies, MB, for example, has put out this document, Building for Climate Change. I have to say that it's good to see them focusing on it. It could be much more ambitious. The OECD regularly criticises that when they come down on their environmental reviews and that we're... We're at the lower end of the OECD regulations, and I guess this reflects our history, and so we constantly have to going back and saying, oh, this is not going to be enough insulation, we've got to put a bit more on. And, of course, that's pretty inefficient, I think. So I think we have to make sure that we've got much better standards, and then there's the issue of we've got to train the staff up, as they did in New York. It was a movement for with architects and engineers and the unions, and we need industry transformation plans, sector skills. And, and, and New York found, and likewise they have found in Europe, where they have much tighter regulations than us, that the old apprenticeships about electricians, plumbers, gas fitters, uh, you know, all these ones need to actually, there needs to be much more flexibility and training for doing things like solar panels. And retrofitting, uh, you know, as was done in Wellington on um, the Aorangi house, turning a very um, sort of lacklustre 1970s building and one that's, you know, almost carbon neutral. And in fact, there are quite a lot of examples in Europe where commercial buildings can be made to generate electricity by having solar panels on the top. And so they become power stations within the city and we tend to demolish ours and um, have trucks trundling through the city, uh, spreading dust everywhere and lots of noise. But it is quite possible if we get the right kind of skills and investment and the cost benefits of this increasingly work out that we could have the commercial buildings could be the power stations within the city. Tell me about uh, how viable it is at the moment when building a new house or a, a new apartment block or a new commercial building to put solar panels, um, to, to make it um, self-sustaining for water, for example, or for waste. How easy is that to do at the moment? Because my understanding is that a lot of the electricity industry structures, um, feed-in tariffs, just make it impossible. Yes, I mean, that's part of our regulatory system, and it is a system we have to think about what the tariffs and the feed-in tariffs and the electricity pricing that um, the electricity companies have. And, of course, their incentives are not to cut the amount of electricity that is used, um, but increase the pricing of it. And um, if there's scarcity, then the prices are going to go up. And then if they haven't invested in wind or um, solar sufficiently, then there's an excuse for burning coal and then our consumption really goes up. The issue that concerns me in public health in particular is that there is also inequalities, um, which we're having a little run through with the EV cars at the moment. I mean, if, if you're going to require higher standards in the houses and you're going to enforce those both for rental housing, which of course is our older stock, and also for new builds, there will always be grumbles that this is adding to the cost of building houses. But if we think about it over a um, medium time frame, it's, it's saving money and it's improving people's health. 
Tell us too about where a house is located because you could have a situation where the house is perfect and doesn't need much energy and is very well insulated, but then you have to jump in a car and drive for an hour and a half into your job. That's a very good point, and we made that point in our book really with the consumption of long-lived gases is about 20% for housing and about 40% for transport. And so, for example, Kayango Water, which has a very large building and remediation policy at the moment, always considers where the housing is and related to public transport. Cycleways and walkways are increasingly built into the amenities because they're regenerating the communities, not just building the houses. So that is absolutely critical. And we've come to that quite slowly in New Zealand. So a lot of the sort of greenfield sites that the special housing zones that were set up previously have all those kind of problems. So one of the issues I can see is that most of our houses are built by quite small house building companies or partnerships or sole traders. I think from memory, more than 70% of the houses we build are done by firms that have less than 10 employees. And when I look at the 40,000 plus building consents issued in the last year, only two or 3,000 of those were uh, for um, what you'd call um, medium density complex houses built by the state, if you like. So most of these houses are done by private builders. They're standalone homes. And from what I can see, that they don't have to take into account the public health costs or the, the education costs or aren't able to use the, the full life carbon cost as a way to offset the cost. There's, it seems to me that the structure of the industry and the way that we do the cost-benefit analysis on the houses we built means that we aren't taking into account the potential long-term benefits to the entire nation of uh, building our houses in, in a way that reduces the carbon emissions and makes them healthier. Yeah, I think I think that definitely has been the case, although, of course, Kaimawara is now doing the largest building plan since the you know, 19- 40s and the beginning of the 1950s. I mean, in um, America, Freddie May and Freddie Mac used to actually give different uh, mortgages depending on whether you had transit-oriented development. And it would be interesting if there were some um, financial instruments like that that actually the banks would do on the basis that um, presumably the occupants or if it's for building for renting, the tenants are going to have more disposable income if they don't have big transport bills. And if it's better, um, if they build above code and um, energy efficient, they're not using so much for energy. So Yeah, it's interesting. The Reserve Bank has said that they're also very closely focused on uh, climate change, looking to include regulations. And then, of course, there's new financial disclosures legislation going through, which in theory could mean the banks have to think about the potential embedded carbon emissions in their mortgages if they're leaning for new literally homes. Literally, they should. Um, and, and, and we know that um, from work that's been... Um, done by Brands and also at Victoria University, that carbon emissions from passive houses, those that are built to very high standard above the building act, which is very slow to be um, redone, that if a passive house, on which people are obliged to build them increasingly in Europe, they have half the emissions of conventional houses and buildings. The, the maths of it is very straightforward. 
that fits in with the sustainable development goals. It's what we've signed up to. But it's important that we don't have suboptimal regulations. And just as you said then, we need to be able to be looking at where, you know, what, what conditions come with the finance, um, what are the planning rules, what do we do about these these huge deficits that we have in terms of water and everything that's underground, which is actually... Um, usually in bad condition in New Zealand. So It seems to me there's a sort of behavioural finance um, problem here in that for many people when they're making the decision about buying a house or building a house, uh, that they are thinking right now what's the lowest possible cost and the, the best possible features I can get for my house. And they're not including the long-term costs because maybe they believe, well, I'm only going to live in this house for six or seven years and then I'll flick it on, uh, that those long-term costs and benefits, benefits which may not accrue to them personally but which will accrue to society in the form of lower health costs, you know, better productivity, um, all those uh, benefits of a more uh, cohesive community, those costs aren't really um, embedded in the decision that someone makes when they're deciding to build a house. How could you, you know, change the behavioural finance, the sort of um, cost-benefit analysis embedded in a price? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my main experience is actually in trying to improve the quality of the rental market because those split incentives that you described there are more marked when the landlord... It's not like the landlords in Netherlands who actually pay for the electricity bill as part of the rent. They say, well, you know, if the tenant wants a well, until they've had to, um, you know, heat, that's their business, even if it's not very good for the fabric of the house to be damp and cold. So in that case, we tried it voluntarily um, with various case studies and then it was brought in as a regulation. So I think... Regulation is part of it, but I think it's getting that exciting vision. I mean, we're, if we had all our homes warm and dry uh, in, in Malmo and Sweden, where we went and looked at public housing, around a beautiful square children's playground, the developers vied in terms of the apartment buildings of whose apartments um, were the most energy efficient and the most attractive. So there wasn't actually regulations, it was just we want to show our wares you know, we have some, say, developers in Wellington like Morris Clark McPhee builders who actually take great pride in going above the construction standards and various other people in Wellington. But it hasn't got through to the housing market, I think. It's it's generally double garage up the front and, you know, lots of big windows. Even those, those may, in changing climate, mean that our houses will overheat. So I think we've got a way to go in selling that vision it is, a, it is a dilemma, and I don't think we've used enough educational, regulatory, taxation instruments yet to try and get those kind of changes going very rapidly. I do think, I am keep on waiting for them to, you know, they keep on saying they're going to release the building code and it's going to increase the levels of insulation. But meanwhile, people have been building houses at an increasing rate. I mean... Anytime there's a delay like that, um, it means that, first of all, the manufacturers are manufacturing a kind of old kind of insulation. You need to give notice ahead. Um, you need to sort of train the people who are going to put it in. So I just, I just think our timetable is slipping and it's slow and it 
doesn't have enough energy in it. Because the Climate Change Commission said that we would need to reduce the energy demand from buildings by 35% for new buildings and then for existing buildings by 6%. Do you think those sorts of numbers are achievable within the next 15 years or so? Well, I think it is if we put um, money into it. Um, and Kaingora, for example, is remediating houses above the code, um, and that's because the the, the strategy um, is that they hold on to them for 50 years, so they're not thinking, oh, we're going to flick them, you know, if someone's only just there for a year. They're doing it in a way that enables them to meet those targets ahead. So I definitely think for those, you, you know, there are investors who've got, thousands of rental properties and we would hope that um, they move quickly to go above code rather than waiting and complaining. What would you say though to, to you know, let's say you've got a, a young couple who desperately want their own new home and they're paying too much on rent and a change in the building codes and various regulations would increase the upfront cost of um, building the house. What would you say to them uh, when maybe they collectively can't afford to get into a house right now because the cost has gone up to them, at least the the, the headline cost? But remember that you, there's costs that are being talked about that, you know, they might put in gas, say, inside the, the house and if it's not signal that this is not going to be an acceptable fuel, you would be also be very annoyed if you put things into the house which are not permissible later on or inadequate or, or we know aren't really going to keep you warm in a, or cool in a climate that's rapidly having extremes. Having two garages, I think, is definitely discretionary, but some of these other things are absolutely essential. Just finally, part of this is about culture and aspirations. Uh, how do you you know, address that sort of quite deep cultural stuff, which is very hard to change. And if you, if you, you know, go the wrong way, you can get people pretty grumpy and they don't vote for you anymore. Well, I, I get to go around and have a look at a huge number of different housing developments now. And I think there's some very clever designs where people can have their backyard, where they can supervise young children, but they have green spaces where they can share outdoor barbecues and have playgrounds which are nicely designed so that people can have eyes on them. I think there's a way of having all those things that we really like, having gardens which are, um, you know, can be um, communal, communal gardens, raised gardens, which brings people together and sharing and and, and I think it's a, a really lovely thing to have fresh vegetables. So you can have all those kind of things without having your own quarter-acre section out the back. There's something about city living that's really... It is a cultural change, but I think it's a really... Um, it's a very good one in many ways. Uh, Philippa, thank you very much. Lovely to have you on board there. Philippa Howden-Chapman, who is the editor and author of the book Improving Buildings, Cutting Carbon, and a long-time researcher in housing. Philippa, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. You're welcome. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, and what's happening with inflation in 2024? Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% 
last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. New Zealand's number one business school wants to help you unlock your potential. At the University of Auckland Business School, learn to innovate, research and collaborate with business leaders to drive real change. Join the business school that's doing things differently and find your passion at the University of Auckland. Check out auckland.ac.nz forward slash business to find the study option for you. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. We have in the studio here at the spin-off, Julia Jackson, who is the Head of Sustainability at KiwiBank. Kia ora and welcome in. Kia ora, man. We're going to talk today about how banks and financiers could help solve a particular problem we have where energy-efficient homes are a bit more expensive to build, but they have lower costs in the long run and, in theory, should hold their value better in the long run. But that's sometimes not how things are normally financed and how a lot of people don't think about buying a home. So how does a bank apply these issues of lower long-term costs and potentially more valuable asset down the track against a higher cost up front, which will need to be financed? Yeah, great. So I think there's a couple of things. So we do have some companies that we're working with who are property developers who have actually established a really um, good model where it's not actually costing them any more now to do really high quality, you know, sort of seven or eight Homestar um, builds. And that's because they understand the requirements of building a high quality home really well and they've just incorporated that into their designs and they gain efficiencies in other areas. So for example, if you make a home really airtight with really high quality insulation, maybe you need less ventilation, less heat pump systems, right? So there's that's probably one of the first things that I would I would challenge as I say that Yes, probably a lot of the time there is still a bit of a higher upfront cost, but not always. And sometimes that requires a bit of different thinking about how we're actually doing projects first off. The second thing I would say is that it really comes down to how we're actually assessing a project and looking at the risk of a project. Um, and particularly, you know, are we looking at, we as a bank, when we're assessing projects, are we looking at that with the, the immediate numbers we've got in front of us or are we actually taking that, that long-term life cycle view of the asset that's being created? Yeah, because how do you take into account, for example, the lower carbon emissions over the life of that asset, which 
you know, once it's built and it's there, it's like set in stone. Uh, you yep. really, it's really quite difficult to change after that. So you're financing it, and this is a valuable thing, the lower carbon credits that you'll need yep. to buy in future. But at the moment, it's sort of not reflected in the price, is it? No, not yet. And I think, you know, with that as well comes that operational efficiency and that, that cost, um, you know, for the for the tenant or the occupant over the lifetime of living in that house or working in that, you know, office space as well, because we also fund office buildings which have very similar issues. How do we actually recognise the efficiencies and benefits and the increased affordability of being in those spaces as well? In my discussion with Philippa Howden-Chapman, she raised the topic of how banks and regulators will interact around climate change. The Reserve Bank has been quite specific about wanting to address climate change and all around the world other central banks are saying to banks, hey, you need to think about the carbon emissions involved here. Um, how is Kiwi Bank, you know, applying the climate change aspect, the need to reduce emissions into its thinking about its lending policies and all of that? Yeah, so um, for us... Lending to properties is about over 80% of our total lending portfolio. Um, so it is a really significant component of what we're lending to. And there's two parts to it. One probably that is quite different to the topic that we're here to talk about today, which is adaptation. So adapting to how the climate is going to be changing and ensuring that where we're building are places that are going to be safe for people to live in the long term. So we've been doing quite a lot of learning and research and development to understand the impact that coastal flooding is going to have on communities and households in New Zealand. And I think that's actually a really important thing to, to think about as well when we look at this conversation about the assets that we're building today are going to be around for the next you know, 50 plus years. Um, so how do we also actually understand what how the environment is going to have changed in that 50 plus years and ensure that we're building in places that are safe. And it's quite hard too when many people who are buying houses are looking for some particular you know, cultural things. They're, they're sort of deep emotional things like, for example, indoor-outdoor flow. You know, I want really big wide windows in and out. I want barbecues on the deck. You know, I want skylights. Uh, you know, ha- that's quite an interesting issue that at some point, Banks and all sorts of people have to think about how you not so much change a culture, but change the incentives or make things look more attractive that do things differently. Mm. And, and I think, you know, it does come down to how we're considering risk and how we're valuing the various components of buildings or whatever it is that we might be financing when we're actually assessing a deal. Um, and I think traditional finance has taken a relatively narrow view of risk. You look at the financials, do the financials stack up? Okay, yep, we can um, we can fund that. But if we take a much broader view of risk, and as you're talking about, you know, look at, look at risk over the long term and as well look at the risk over a whole number of different factors, then that, that conversation becomes quite different. You're also doing some sort of unusual things for a bank because because my, my expectation and my observation of banks is that the simplest, most profitable, easiest thing for any banks to do is to lend money for someone who already owns a property to buy an existing already there property that um, they know the value of the property. It might have changed hands two or three times before. Uh, there's no development risk 
You know, there's, there's no consent that's suddenly going to go missing or some builder that's going to fall over halfway through the project, particularly if it's a standalone home in the suburbs, your traditional, you know, villa slash bungalow. It's not going to have a problem with, you know, leaky buildings or mm. quakey buildings or whatever. It's simple and it's easy and it's fast and, you know, I can go and play golf afterwards or whatever I do when I've got some spare time. So you're talking here about lending to projects, which, you know, normally that's like red flag for a banker project. <laughs> oh, no, that's the development finance guys. Sorry, that's hard over there, thanks. Or they say, well, we've got some particular rules about lending. For example, we don't lend on apartments less than 50 square metres or we don't lend on apartments that don't have car parks or we apply a higher risk premium mm. for apartments because they could be leaky or quaky, you know. How do you change that? Because at the moment, you know, we're talking $300 billion worth of mortgages are really aimed at that standalone single home that already exists in the suburbs. And what you're talking about is slightly complicated. You're going to have to do some work on this project where you have to assess different risks and think about things that aren't normal. I mean, how, how are you doing that? Yeah, and I think, you know, we are lucky at Kiwi Bank in that we have always tried to ensure that, you know, we are um, doing banking in a way that is develop delivering fair value for Kiwi and making Kiwi better off, you know, as part of, sort of I guess, one of the reasons which we were created in the first place. So, you know, we have experimented, I guess, for lack of a better word, with some of these slightly alternative models for a while. We've been supporting the New Zealand Housing Foundation, for example, um, with some of their shared equity lines. I don't know if you know much about what they do, but essentially enabling people to get into houses who might not have much of a deposit. It's sort of social or very affordable housing and they sort of back up some of that lending and, and then the tenant pays it off over time. You've got a couple of examples of housing co-ops as, as well yeah. where, you've, where you've worked on that. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. So we've um, yeah, so we've now worked with a couple of different what they call co-housing developments. So basically it's a cooperative of people who all go in to purchase a piece of land. They build on that piece of land. It's normally sort of medium density housing, you'd probably call it, not, not super high density, but also because of the model, they're not sort of standard alone houses, so tend to be terraced houses, um, and they are all part of the community. So what they're buying into as, I guess, the property developers who are building that, that property is the ideal of working and living in a communal space that is high-quality housing um, that en enables a community as well. So there's sort of a shared ownership aspect to what they're trying to do. So yeah, we learnt a lot through that. I mean, that's very non-standard lending for a bank. You know, What were the, the sort of surprises and hurdles yet to overcome? Well, I think the biggest thing is just understanding the, the legal model of a structure like a cooperative, right? And, and how do you actually assess, you know, 50 individual owners of a, of a property development as opposed to, you know, in a standard model, we might have two which might be, you know, husband and wife, as opposed to, you know, here it's a collective of individuals who may or may not know each other very well. So, you know, you've got to understand what's the governance model for that organisation. How are they going to deal with things when things go wrong, when someone might want to leave? Um, and so it really just takes time to understand how those models are operating and what are the benefits that are going to be delivered from that model as opposed to just seeing that as too hard basket, let's let's not even go there. So Kiwi Bank's doing some things with its customers to try and encourage this move towards greener, warmer, healthier homes. 
Uh, what's it doing itself? Because you've got a whole bunch of office spaces and places and no doubt vehicles and various other things. How are you making sure we, we get to that carbon zero? Yeah, so we established a target a couple of years ago of reducing our total carbon from uh, 2018 to 2022 by 30%. Um, so that's in line with Paris Agreement and sort of slightly um, ahead of some of the New Zealand goals and and the reason why we did 30% was we wanted to make some big changes up front um, because we believed it was important to act fast. So a couple of the really big things that have delivered massive improvements for us has been moving into Green Star offices. So we moved into, in Wellington, we moved into a five Green Star and in Auckland we've moved into a six Green Star for our two head office sites. In Wellington and Auckland we don't quite have the data yet to tell you how much we've saved through that move because it's only been sort of six months now. But in Wellington, that reduced our electricity consumption for our Wellington region by about 50%. And I know not every business or individual is just able to move into a more energy efficient space. But I think what we've tried to do is when we're making these really big decisions, which to your point are going to lock us into something for years and years to come, how do we actually do that deliberately and with some of these big commitments that we've got in mind? So what more have you got to do to get to carbon zero by 2050? Or maybe it looks like we're going to have to do more than that if we're going to get to one and a half degrees. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, a lot. I mean, and I think all of us have a lot to do and have to really think about how we are doing business and um, making decisions. Probably our biggest next thing that we're looking at is our fleet. All of our fleet is hybrid, and we're just looking at what the transition to electric looks like for us now. Do you have any double cab utes? <laughs> no, luckily <laughs> That's we don't. All right. What's the change that you've made that makes sure when you're making lending decisions that you are finding the best outcome for the planet? Hmm. So, I mean, I think that's definitely a work in, in progress for us at the moment. One of the things that we are spending quite a lot of time to do at the moment is how do we actually change the way in which we assess risk, which I know I've sort of spoken about a little bit before. How do we understand the different um, certification standards that are out there at the moment? Because again, as a as a financier, our role isn't to go and assess individual building practices or or standards, but it's to understand how the project that we're looking at, be it someone's house or, you know, big commercial property development, is actually applying green thinking and doing so in a way that we can trust. So certifications and standards is quite an important one for us to look at. You wonder how long before we start seeing in real estate ads, you know, seven green star or whatever, instead of at the moment, three car garage and and Gramazone or whatever it is. Well, if you look at somewhere like the Netherlands, they do have that. So every single property in the Netherlands has an energy rating applied to it. It's not just energy, but I think it looks at quality of the, the building in and of itself, the actual energy performance of the building, whether it's got anything like solar, so if there's any renewable offsets that you can get on the building. And that information is fully publicly available, so anyone can go and look on it like they look at a valuation report. And that really is, I mean, I think that would be a game changer for New Zealand because when we're looking at our risk profile, that would en- enable us to look at an independent source of information and give us a really good picture of where our portfolio sits. I'm about to say something that will scare the living daylights out of every potential property owner in the country, which is to include that sort of report as an attachment to a limb. Yeah. (laughs) 
That, that will get everyone's head. Julia Jackson, the head of sustainability at QBank. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Julia. Cool. Thanks, Bernard. And that was Julia Jackson from Kiwi Bank. And earlier we heard from Philippa Howden Chapman. That was a fascinating look at a particular market failure and a look at the solutions. I love a good political economy story on the issue of our age, climate change and housing affordability. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was When the Facts Change, a podcast on the Spinoff Network brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.